Let's look at uh, John 4 this morning. I intended to go on to the scriptures teaching regarding ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we'll come to those in maybe two weeks, but it'd be good for us to look at the idea of corporate worship, worship as a body, a body of Christ. What is worship in the church? Um, around the world, uh, primarily in Britain and the U.S., and it's found its way here too. For the last 30 to 40, maybe 50 years, there has been going on what's called the worship wars. That means that there has been a lot of conflict amongst Christians regarding what worship is, uh, what form and shape music in worship should take, what elements we can include in worship, should we have this in our Sunday worship service? Should we have this? Should we exclude this? How should we go about worship? Who is worship primarily for? Do we structure worship services for the lost to evangelize them? Do we put worship services together to do something for us? What is the purpose of worship and why does the church gather to worship the Lord together? And so I think it'd be good for us to look at what the scripture teaches about worship for uh, two weeks. This week, we'll look at just general title, corporate worship. And my main goal this morning is to answer this question. Uh, why does Christ call his people to worship together? So we are all worshipers, we'll see. And we could sit at home and worship the Lord. Why do we come together to worship Him? Why is there such a thing as corporate worship in the Scripture? And then next week we will look at the elements of corporate worship. What are the things that we're supposed to be doing when we gather together to worship the Lord? What does the Scripture tell us we are to do? So let's read John chapter 4. We'll start in verse 16. Reading about the woman at the well in Samaria. And Jesus has just told her that she may have living water if she'll ask of him. And so the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And so then Jesus responds to her, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her something that must have shocked her. You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, if you're that woman, you've just met this stranger, he knows your <laughs> marital history, what are you thinking? You're thinking this is not an ordinary man. He must be a prophet of God. He must have some connection to God in heaven to know my history. And that's why she says what she does. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so if he's a prophet, let's give him a hard question. And this is a question that the Jews and the Samaritans debated with quite a lively and energetic debate in their day. Here's the question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain... But you, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So the implied question is, where should we worship? Samaritans say Mount Gerizim. Jerusalem, Jews say Mount of Moriah, Jerusalem. Where are we supposed to worship? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. Well, they worship in ignorance, he's saying. You don't really know where God wants you to worship. And the reason for that is because they had altered the scriptures to make it say Mount Gerizim. And so they're worshiping God, but they're worshiping him ignorantly. In contrast, we Jews, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation and the revelation from God that leads to salvation has come from the Jews. Meaning that Jews possess God's revelation that brings men to God and to salvation. But, verse 23, the hour is coming. This is the way that it has been. The question of Mount Gerizim, 
Jerusalem. But the hour is coming in the future and actually is now here. When the true worshippers will worship the Father, not in Mount Gerizim and not in Jerusalem, instead in spirit. And they won't worship him ignorantly, instead they will worship him in truth or truly, just as he desires. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a debate here. Where does worship take place? Jesus says, in the future, actually, now's the time when this starts. No longer do people worship only in Jerusalem. And that's what the Old Testament law had said. Don't set up shrines or sanctuaries or altars anywhere but in Jerusalem. That's the place where the Lord God will put his name. And so it is only in Jerusalem that we are to worship. Samaritans have come, come along and said, well, we're Samaritans. We're enemies of the Jews. We can't go to Jerusalem to worship. So we'll just set up a shrine in Mount Gerizim and we'll kind of fix Moses' law so that it says Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem and we'll worship in Mount Gerizim. Jesus says, look, the time is coming when there's not going to be a specific geographical location anymore where you are to worship God. Instead, that worship will take place in spirit, in the human spirit. That's where we worship God. We don't have to go to Jerusalem we don't have to go here or there to worship God. We may worship him in our human spirit. And the Father is seeking some to worship him in truth. Not in ignorance, but actually to worship him truly. So that real worship was offered up. See, in the Old Testament, worship was a very physical thing. You could go and offer your lamb... And really, your heart could have been far from God, but you went through the motions. Is that true worship? If you've got a specific geographical place, specific physical worship that is involved, you can do all that with your hands and your eyes and your feet without your heart really being engaged. But the Father is seeking more than that. He's seeking more than people to simply show up in Jerusalem and offer lambs. And that's what happened every year at Passover. Instead, the Father is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and to worship Him truly. Why is this change going to take place? From physical, external worship in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim, depending on who's right, and the Jews are right, Jesus says, physical, external worship to worship in spirit and in truth. Why is this change going to take place? And the reason is given to us in verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why? Because for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. If God's going to receive true worship, it's got to be done the way that He wants it to be done. And actually, the way that the Jews were doing it in the Old Testament was not the way that God wished it to be done. Merely external performance of religious ritual. Now God is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so, Jesus says, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. You know, in the entire Bible, there's only one thing that it says that the Father is seeking. It says that the Son of Man came to seek and save sinners. But when it comes to the Father in heaven, there's only one thing He wants. We have the doctrine of God that we develop from the Scripture. And one of those teachings that we find about God in the Scriptures is that He is sufficient. God didn't need this world. He didn't make this world because He needed something. And yet, the Scripture says he's seeking something. What is he seeking? The only thing the Scripture tells us that he is seeking is true worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. Where will he get his worshipers? And we're going to turn to another passage now that's going to give us the answer to that. Where will these worshipers come from? Let's turn to Romans chapter 12. You could quote this verse. Romans chapter 12, 
Where will God get his worshippers from? Will he sit back and wait for them to appear? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy. Now, sacrifices, that took place in Old Testament worship, right? I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That last word, the King James says, what is the last word in the King James? Reasonable service. It's a little difficult to know how to translate that word exactly. But the one thing we do know is whatever reasonable service is, that's the word that's used in the Old Testament for what the priests were doing in the tabernacle. They're offering sacrifices. They are offering up the worship to God. And that's why ESV calls it your spiritual worship. Uh, I think the New American Standard Bible might say your spiritual service of worship. In other words, there is a service to God. There's a worship to God that is rendered by those priests in the offering up of those sacrifices. Now, the priests offered that worship in the Old Testament by offering up lambs upon the altar. There was blood and knives and basins and feasts. What is your spiritual service of worship? How do you worship God? Now that all that's been done away with by the sacrifice of Christ. The answer is, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. This is your service to God. When the King James says service, we think of going out and serving God. But actually, probably the word service there, as those translators were thinking about it in the 1600s, they're thinking about it more in terms of what we refer to as a Sunday morning worship service. In other words, it's a time when we come together and we worship the Lord. And so what is your worship? What is your service to God? It is presenting your bodies. And notice what Paul's logic is here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And that's what he's been talking to us about in chapter 1 through 11. God's mercies in bringing us salvation. On the basis of all of that, I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual service of worship. As I said previously, worship in the Old Testament was quite physical. It involved walking to a specific place, bringing a lamb, observing feasts and priestly robes and knives and basins and lampstands and bread and blood and altars and meals and offerings. It was all very physical and it was possible to go through all of the motions of worship, but not to worship truly. But now in the New Testament, God is seeking true worshipers. Romans chapter 12 tells us that this true worship is spiritual worship. Not physical, spiritual worship. It takes place in the human spirit. But this worship also occurs only because the spirit of God directs our hearts towards God in love and worship. And so the worship is spiritual in that sense. It is directed by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who inclines our hearts to render up this spiritual worship. In other words, worship is not primarily physical or emotional or sensual in the first place. A fast beating heart, a wild ecstasy, a great gush of tears. These are not necessarily heightened acts of worship. Our love for Christ is not like the love and attraction of a man for a woman. It's not a physical love. Our love for Christ, our worship of Christ, it is a matter of the Spirit. The Spirit of God producing in us worship. In other words, you can worship the Lord and your pulse does not have to change. You can worship the Lord and you don't have to overflow in a great gush of tears. Doesn't mean that might not happen. Happens plenty of times. 
But those things are not the essential marks of what worship is because worship is spiritual. And it is based on the mercies of God. Think about what Paul's logic is here. God has shown you great mercy. Response? Present your body as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual service of worship. God did not save you so that you could use your body for yourself. He saved you so that you would present your body as a living sacrifice to him. And Paul can appeal to us, therefore, on the basis of those mercies. In other words, it's not just, well, Jesus died and showed you mercy, so present your body as a living sacrifice. It's, no, these two things go together. Look, if he showed you mercies, you've got to present your body as a living sacrifice. I can appeal to you on the basis of the mercies to present your body as a living sacrifice. They go together. If he's done this, you must do this. It's only right that you do this. He is worthy of this. He is due your presenting of your body as a living sacrifice. Your body is bought with a price, the price of the blood of Christ, and so therefore glorify God in your body. So what are we seeing here in Romans 12? God showed us these mercies that we might present our bodies, which is our spiritual worship. Why did God save you? Why did he show you his mercies? It is that you might become a worshiper of God. He's seeking worshipers. And this is how they are being made. Where's the worshiper factory? It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where God is at work to make us worshipers. And yet God is not simply looking for Thousands of independent worshippers all over this world. There's one and there's one. There's worshippers all over this world and they're all worshipping him. That's not primarily what God is seeking. Primarily the worship that he is seeking is corporate worship. He's looking for the worship of not people. He's looking for the worship of a people. A corporate group. A body that worships him. And let me show you this. God is not simply seeking our own individual worship. He is seeking corporate worship. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter makes this, Peter makes this point very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we read from 1 Peter 1 this morning. God's work to beget us as our Father to a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 2, and let's look at verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see those four little designations at the beginning of verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those are actually, what are we going to call them, titles that God used for ancient Israel. And you can jot down these references. We're not going to take the time to read them. But you can read them later on. The word chosen race. God refers to Israel as a chosen race in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 22. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. You are a chosen race. Royal priesthood. He calls Israel a royal priesthood in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. The royal priesthood is Exodus 19, 5 and 6. And then the last two are really easy because they're from the same passage of Scripture. So holy nation and people for God's own possession is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 
through 11. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. So you're welcome to turn to each of those passages in your Bible. I just want to say about two sentences about each one of those little designations. And then we're going to sum them up because they all point to one thing about Israel. So chosen race, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22, royal priesthood, Exodus 19, 5 through 6, holy nation and people for God's own possession, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. Why did God call Israel these things? What did he intend that Israel understand about themselves when he said to them, you're a chosen race? Here's what Deuteronomy 10 says. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. God says, look, I own the whole earth. The whole earth is mine. But I choose you, Israel, to be a chosen race. To be the people who I will love. The people who will love me. The people who will serve me. The people who will praise me. In other words, the whole earth is mine. How many of them are worshipping God? How many of them are loving Him, serving Him, praising Him? None. So God says, I'll pick you and I'll turn you into a race of people to worship me. Royal priesthood. This is what God calls Israel in Exodus 19 when He brings them out of Egypt. Now priests offer up sacrifices to God in worship. And God says, I have chosen you, Israel, to be a royal priesthood. This was the centerpiece of the worship of God that was to take place in the tabernacle. And Peter says, you're the royal priesthood. All you Gentiles who are scattered, out, scattered abroad throughout all of Asia Minor that we read about in chapter 1, verse 1. All of you exiles, you are the royal priesthood. God has made you a priesthood to offer up sacrifices and worship to God. Why did God create Israel as a royal priesthood? Why did he create the Gentiles? Include them in that body to be a royal priesthood. Answer, so that they would offer up sacrifices and worship to God. And holy nation and people for God's own possession, Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 through 11, God called Israel to be a holy people, a holy nation. A people for his treasured possession from all the peoples of the earth. And that was the reason God told them that Israel was supposed to destroy all those nations in the promised land when they came in. Go into the promised land. There's nations already dwelling there. They're worshiping their own gods. Destroy them, Israel, and drive them out. So that those nations don't tempt you to turn aside from a single-hearted devotion to and worship of God. So why did God call Israel a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? When he called them that, he was intending to signal to them this, Israel, I have made you to be worshipers of me. And what's significant is God chose a nation to be worshipers. He chose a people to be worshipers. Now let me show you that in verse 10. In Romans, 1, Romans 12... We saw mercies of God lead me to be a worshiper. Remember that? Saved to be a worshiper. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people. That's not Israel. He's not talking about Israel anymore. He's talking about the Gentiles from chapter 1, verse 1. All you Gentiles, once you weren't a people. You were scattered amongst all the nations. You were mixed in with all the rest because you were just like them. You were Gentiles. You were unbelievers. But now you are a people. God has gathered you together just as he gathered Israel together. And notice what he parallels that with. Once not a people, now a people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. Why did God show his mercy to the Gentiles? It was to create a people. You didn't used to have God's mercy. Now you do. You didn't used to be a people. Now you're a people. Why did he create this people? He created them as a holy people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Why did he create this single priesthood? Why not have priests all over the earth? Why create one royal priesthood? Why create one holy nation? Why create one people for his own possession? Answer, why did he show his mercy and create those? 
Answer, verse 9, second half of the verse. Why did he make the Gentiles this way by his mercy into a people? It was so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God called Israel out, made them a nation. He called Israel out, made them a priesthood. He called Israel out, made them a people. Why? Because priesthoods and nations and peoples worship God, he says. You're supposed to be worshiping me. He says, you didn't used to have, have mercy, Gentiles. Now you do. You didn't used to be a people. Now you are. Why? Same reason. So that you would show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's purpose for calling the Gentiles together to be a people is so that he might have a people to worship him. God made Israel a chosen nation. Did they worship him? He made them a royal priesthood. Did they bring worship to him? He made them a chosen nation. Did they bring worship to God? No. And so he shows mercy to the Gentiles to create a people who will show forth his excellencies, who will bring him the worship that he deserves. So in Romans 12, God showed mercy. He saved us to create worshipers. In 1 Peter 2, God showed mercy. He saved us to create a people who would worship him. A group, a body, a nation, a race, a priesthood. And this is where the universe is headed. You can turn to Revelation chapter 5 to see this. A people, a nation worshiping God as one with one voice. This is what God desires. Not lots of individual worshipers necessarily. What he desires is a people, a body worshiping him. Verse 8, Revelation 5, verse 8. And when the Lamb had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. This is the greatest act of worship, by the way. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people and you have made them a kingdom. See verse 9, he ransoms lots of people but he makes them a kingdom, a single kingdom. He makes them a priesthood to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. What do you think of when you think of this scene? Picture yourself there. Where is your focus? Well, it's obviously on the Lord, right? On the Lamb who sits on the throne. Do you even have any peripheral vision? Do you even know that there's other people around the throne? Like when we think about this, I think we think, yeah, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be worshiping the lamb. And yeah, there'll be a lot of other people, but that's not really going to matter. I'm going to be there focused on the Lord. But actually, you redeemed God. You redeemed a people. You redeemed people for God and you made them a kingdom. The whole universe is headed to the place where there is one people, one kingdom, and they are all together around God's throne worshiping him. God is not merely concerned to have individual worshipers. He wants to have a nation, a people, a priesthood to worship him. The question is, why? Is there something better about having a whole group of people instead of just one? Is the sum more than the parts? Is there something inherently better about having a whole group of people to worship the Lord? Well, that's where we're going to look now at the weight of corporate worship. What is so significant, weighty about corporate worship? What's so significant about this? First of all, let's answer what is worship and let's go to Psalm 90. You have Psalm 29. I'm sorry, I changed it this morning in my notes. So I'm going to go to Psalm 96. 
You can go to either passage because it says basically the same thing. The words are almost identical. You can go to Psalm 96 or you can go to Psalm 29. Psalm 96, I think, will just be a little bit more helpful for us in seeing exactly what we need to see here. Psalm 96, if you want the new reference, it's Psalm 96, verses verses 7 through 9. Psalm 96, 7 through 9. So let's read verses 7 through 9. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now just look at that second phrase of that first line. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. What does that look like if you had to draw a picture on paper? The word peoples usually refers to nations in the Old Testament. So think about all these, all these nations. But in these nations, there are families, distinct families in the nations. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. How do you do that? Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The English word worship, if you went back about 300 years, they wouldn't have been pronouncing it worship. They would have been pronouncing it worth-ship. And the reason for that is because worship is something that you give a king. It's something that you give a god. And why? Because you think of that king, you think of that god as worthy of your worth-ship. And so you give it to them. Look with me at this passage, verse 9, the beginning word of the verse. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And that is the same thing as what we're seeing in verses 7 and 8. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord. Tremble before him all the earth. The way that Hebrew poetry works is they put two lines in parallel that mean essentially the same thing. So he says, ascribe, 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 worship. What does it mean to worship? It means to ascribe. And what are we supposed to be ascribing to God? Well, look at verse 7 again. Ascribe to the Lord, and the thought breaks off, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord what? Glory and strength. God is a certain kind of being. So you go to the zoo, you come to the giraffe's cage. (coughs) Giraffes are a bit different from the rest, right? There's something about them that sets them apart, makes them unique. It's their glory. It's really, really, really long. That's the glory of the giraffe. It's what sets them apart from everything else. God is a certain kind of being. I don't mean to be irreverent, but if you went to the zoo and you came by the cage of deity, that cage would not even be in the same zoo as everything else. It's in a completely different category. Why? Because God has all sorts of perfections that are completely unlike us. The giraffe's got a long neck, but at least he's got a neck and everything else has a neck too. It's just not as long. Now talk about God. He doesn't even have a neck. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have arms. He doesn't have eyes. He's not like us. He's a completely different category. He's a certain kind of being. He's got a certain glory about him that makes him very different than us. So certain kind of being ascribed to the Lord the glory and strength. This God not only looks really different, he's not only a different kind of being, He also has a different kind of strength and he does a different kind of works. Works that we could never even think of accomplishing. He has a strength that we don't know anything about. In other words, his person and his acts of great strength. These two things take God and put him in a completely different category. Now, if you see someone, they go to Kohl's, they pick up groceries, come home, unload them into the pantry, cook a meal, put it on the table. Do you fall down and worship them? No, because you can do that too. They're not worthy of anything that you don't already have. But what about 
if God is totally just in a way that we don't even come close? Does he deserve any kind of a different response than I would give to a, a judge on this earth who, or my kids who are not anywhere near just, or myself, I'm not just. I'm talking about God. Does he deserve any kind of a different response? Is there any glory, verse 8, that is due to him that he's worthy of? Together, the glory of God, his being, and the strength of God's work combine to form his great name. Verse 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. God is worthy of being regarded as a being of glory and strength. Why? Because he is. He's worthy of being regarded as performing great acts. He's worthy of our responding to what he has done and our responding to who he is, of ascribing these things to him, of bringing them and laying them before him and saying, what a great God. And these responses are, verse 8, they are things that are due to him. They belong, he is worthy of them. What are some of these responses? Verse 8, bring an offering, come into his courts. Verse 9, tremble before him, all the earth. What responses is God worthy of if he is a father? What responses is he worthy of if he is inflexibly just? What responses is he worthy of if he is a king over all the earth? What response is he worthy of if he is the one who split the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh's army? What response is he worthy of if he says, I am the only savior? What response is he worthy of if he is totally trustworthy, never lets anyone down, period, ever? He keeps all of his word 100%. What response is he worthy of? How should I respond to him? What about if he says, I'm the God who raised Jesus from the dead? What response is he worthy of? What about if he says to you, I am your maker? What response is he worthy of? What about if he tells you, I am like no creature on earth? Those responses that he is worthy of, when I offer them up to God, I am worshiping him. Responding to him according to what he is worth. And there's two passages of scripture you can look at to see just examples of this. We won't turn there. It's almost, almost out of time here. You can look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He hears the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's response, he gives two responses to that God. One of them is contrition and humility. Woe is me, I'm undone. If God is like that, how do I respond? Yeah, I'm a pretty good guy, God. No, no, no. If God is like that, woe is me, I'm undone. That is an act of worship. He is bringing to God the, the response that God is worthy of. And Isaiah responds with the response of service. Who will go for us? Well, if you're like that, God, I'll go. Send me. Here am I. Send me. There's two responses of worship that Isaiah gives. That God is worthy of. The God that he has found. The God that he has seen is worthy of them. And we don't always have experiences like Isaiah. We see the Lord sitting in his holy temple above and the posts of the door are shaking and the house is filled with smoke. We don't have experiences like that every day. So what about Genesis 24? Here's another act of worship. Genesis 4, 26, 52, and 66. Genesis 24, 26. Genesis 24, verse 26, verse 52, and verse 56. How's that? This is where Abraham sends his servant into the far country to get a wife for Isaac. The servant comes into the country. He sits down on the well. He begins to pray, and the scripture says, before he had even said amen, 
It doesn't say it exactly like that, but that helps us understand. Before he had even finished praying, behold, Rebecca comes out with her water jar on her shoulder. And he's just prayed, and Abraham has told him, the woman has got to be from our kin. The servant doesn't even know what situation he's in. He doesn't even know what city he's in. He just happens to turn up at this city, the very first one he comes to. He doesn't know who lives here. His master Abraham hasn't seen his family for 30 years. He turns up, he sits down in the well, he prays, and before he's even done, there's a young woman standing there. She happens to be kin to Abraham. She happens to have plenty of room for all of his camels. She happens to be unmarried, and she also happens to be beautiful. And the servant bows his head and worships the Lord. God has led him. God has answered his prayer. God deserves the recognition then as the great leader of his people. God deserves the recognition as the great answerer of prayers. This great sovereign orderer of the steps of beautiful young maidens to appear at watering holes at the very second required to fulfill the needs of his people. This God who has done this is worthy of my responding to him, bowing my head and saying, this wasn't me, this was him. He's the one who has accomplished this. He is the one who is worthy of a bowed head at this point, rather than me holding my head up as though I had done it. This is the response that Abraham's servant gives. So we're going to go through the next sub-point, and then I'm going to leave you to think about the last sub-point. What is the weight of corporate worship? I'll leave you to think about that this week. That's kind of the, the point that I'm driving for this whole thing. Why is corporate worship so significant? Why did God create a people by His mercy? Why does He create the body of Christ to worship Him? What is the significance of our gathering together to worship Him? Is that better than just sitting at home and doing my own personal worship? Well, God's made it that way. Why? What's the significance of this? What's the weight of it? So you can think about that. I'm going to give you two passages of Scripture. I reworked that point just a little bit this morning, so I'll give them to you in a minute. But let's just answer this question, first of all, the second sub-point there. What is corporate worship? What do, we mean, what do we mean when we talk about corporate worship? We've answered the question now, I think, what is worship? Worship is my offering the responses to God that He's worthy of. Bowing my head low. It is my bringing an offering, my trembling in His presence, my volunteering to go, my contrition and humility in light of who He is. But what is corporate worship? Let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 3. These will be the two passages we'll finish up, finish up here with this morning, okay? Before we read these passages, I want to ask you, where did worship take place in the Old Testament? What building was it? It's called a temple, right? It's where all the worship took place, the temple in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body is God's temple because God's Holy Spirit is in you. Gods live in temples, right? And our God lives in a temple. In the Old Testament, it was in Jerusalem. Now where is it? In you. And that's why Jesus says the Father's looking for worshipers to worship Him in spirit now because the Spirit is coming. He's going to live in you. So if you want to go to the temple, it's right here. Time to worship. As long as you live in this body, worship God. Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not yours. Your body doesn't belong to you. So you use your body as God is worthy of. The way that you respond to God is with your hands, with your fingers, with your mouth. You respond to Him as He is worthy of. He's not worthy of, as Paul has just been discussing here, sexual immorality. To be joined to a prostitute when your body is the temple of the Lord, what does that do but join Christ in a prostitute? How does that work? It's not supposed to. That's Paul's point. Your body is the temple of the Spirit of God. So worship God in it. Don't go out and commit immorality. That's Paul's point. So in your home, 
you may worship God. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship Him. But your body is not the only temple of God today. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us about another temple where worship is supposed to take place. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you, who? All the brothers from chapter 3 verse 1. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Your body is the temple and so is Christ's body. Christ's body is the temple of God as well. Where is that temple where you could go to worship? Well, it gathers every Sunday all over the world. And that is where the worship of God takes place, in the temple of God. And they gather together and they offer up sacrifices of praise. They offer up allegiance to God. They commemorate his death and resurrection. They sing praise to him. They listen attentively to his words because his words, like no other's words, are worthy of being attended to. We don't go anywhere else to sit and listen to people's words and hang on them and then try to live our lives by them. This only happens in this temple where God's people gather. So what then is the weight of corporate worship? I'll give you two passages to look at, one from the old and one from the new. I think one of them is already there. Actually, they might both be there. Uh, sorry, if Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. And if you want a little fill in the blank for that one, I'll give you the first three words, and then you can fill in the blank. What's the significance of corporate worship? Well, corporate worship proclaims dot, 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 and you get to fill in the dot, dot, dot. What does corporate worship proclaim? And the second one is, I think we've already used 1 Peter 2, and that's why I took that one out of that point. The second one is Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. Corporate, and here's the, here's the little fill in the blank again, corporate worship manifests what? When we gather corporately to worship God, we all with one voice worship Him. What does that show? Okay, so you can take a look at those this week and see if you can determine what is the weight of corporate worship. What is its significance? Why does God want corporate worship and not just individual worship? Not saying he doesn't want individual worship. Go home and worship God tomorrow morning. Read his word and pray because he's worthy of it. Give him that response. He's worthy of that. Now, we didn't fill in what corporate worship is, did we? Let's fill that one in. Now, this definition is not mine. It comes from another preacher. But I will say this about this definition. Well, I'm just saying that to say that it's not actually mine. So don't give me any credit for it. Um, but this definition has served me well just about every Sunday that I have gone to church. I think about it about every Sunday. And it has done me spiritual good every single week that I can recall. So I'm going to give it to you. We'll say it two or three times, see if you can memorize it. And uh, it will help give you direction and guidance as you come to worship God with his people on Sundays. So corporate worship is our offering, our offering up to God, offering up to God the united, it is corporate, united, we're all together united, the united spiritual responses of which he alone is worthy or due. Either one will work. I memorize the word worthy. Either one of them will work. It's from Psalm 96, Psalm 29. Offering up to God, our offering up to God, the united spiritual Responses. Our worship is not primarily physical, it's spiritual. These united spiritual responses, we're responding to what God is. We're not making something up. If he truly is this way, then I've got to respond this way. It's offering those responses up to God. Those responses that he alone is worthy of. We do things in corporate worship, and you do them in individual worship. 
that you wouldn't do for anybody else. You would never pick up a man's book and read it every day of your life. Devote an hour of your time to reading, to memorizing, to studying this. You, you ever done that with any other book? Only God's word. Why? Because only he is worthy of that. Yeah. You ever sing to other people? You ever go to prime minister and say, hey, I just want to sing you a praise song. You ever do that? Is he worthy of that? God is. That's why we worship him. And when we come together and do that with a united voice, why? What's the significance of that? What's the weight of that? You go look at those two passages and we'll look at them next week. And then what I want to do is take those two weights of corporate worship. We're going to look at the elements of corporate worship and try to understand. All right. So one of the elements is singing. We're supposed to sing in our corporate worship. So how does that fit with these two weights of corporate worship? Giving attention to God's word. How does that fit with these two significances of corporate worship? So if you want to, maybe, on, maybe next week I'll draw you a little table with five rows two columns, the two significances, and the five or six elements of corporate worship. And we'll fill that in next week, okay? But if you want an additional project this week, you can look through the scripture and say, all right, what does God command us to do when we gather together in worship to him? What are supposed to be our, what are supposed to be the elements? Like, can we do like dramas? Can we, can we like have, have, have somebody come in and do a motivational speech like from, from parliament or something? Can we? Can we include, include this or include that? What are supposed to be the elements of corporate worship that God has commanded? And then we'll do those in worship to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is worthy of our worship. And we look up to you now. And from all that we have seen in the scriptures, we understand that you alone are worthy of our allegiance, of our love, our praise. You are the one who is worthy of our trust, of our submission. It is you and your son who are worthy of our dependence for salvation. You are worthy of all that we can render to you because you have made us all that we are. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace this week to worship you. And may we find the significance and weight of corporate worship because your desire extends beyond simply saving individuals for the sake of their individual worship. You desire to create a people, to show mercy, to form a people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession to show forth the excellencies of the one who has called us from darkness into light. And we ask that you would bless our study next week of those things. And we ask in Christ's name.